0: start this? How do I start this? Oh, this is how I start. Three, two, one. Hello, friends. Welcome to this, another episode of the Roto World Football Podcast. My name is Josh Norris. I just forgot how I open episodes <laughs> each and every week. That's where we're at right now. Later on in this episode, I have a wonderful guest, an interview I've already pre-recorded. His name is Ben Fennel. You know him on Twitter, Benfennel underscore NFL. Just a truly great football mind If I can use cliches, both with draft prospects and putting that that perspective into the NFL as well. We have a great conversation on, you know, prospects that were drafted outside of round one last year in 2019. And if they have their mirror or their match in 2020. So be sure to listen to that. And if you do enjoy it, uh, consider leaving us a rating or review or maybe more importantly, share it. Like tell one friend to listen to the episode that helps us out. Tremendously. But to start, as always on these Thursday episodes, I am bringing in Patrick Doherty to take us through the blurbs of the week, the news of the week. Patrick, how are you, my friend?
2: Yeah, you know, we're all a little off our game. I was shocked and saddened when you began the podcast uh, in the wrong (laughs) manner.
0: And that flustered me. I'm off my game now. Right, Um, right. Um, What has uh, Roto Emilia? been up to as of late? Like, what is she into right now? What funny tidbits and nuggets can you shine some happiness on all of us out here in the rest of the world?
2: I was going to say, I don't know. Uh, she's about to turn four in late May. And uh, what she's been up to lately is learning how the virus is ruining her life. <laughs> and oh. uh, like, can't can't see grandmas right now. Can't go to the park right now. Can't go to the store right now. Uh,
0: It's starting to set in
2: for her, you know, like something unusual is going on.
0: Have you like at all tried to like broach the conversation of of what it is?
2: Yeah, a little bit. And, you know, we've been we've had many talks about, you know, we got to be extra stringent with washing our hands right now. Uh, Let's try not to touch our face literally all day like you normally do. She overhears the TV. She overhears Mama and Dada talking. She she knows something unusual is going on. But thankfully, it's still just like running around like a happy, crazy person most of the day. And we, we do get to take a lot of walks still.
0: That's good. They closed a the dog park over here. So, yes, Zap and I will be just going on walks for the rest of Hard to eternity. be walks. So. Are you putting a mask on Zap, Josh? No, I'm not putting a mask on Josh right now, but that needs to change. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros
1: in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
0: Let's hit on the news of the week, the blurbs of the week. Uh, we start off, Pat, with a name we have not heard in quite some time. The Dallas Cowboys have signed Edge Rusher out on Smith, formerly of the 49ers, as you all know, to a one-year, $2 million contract. Pat, I remember back during Super Bowl week, Jay Glazer was on Peter King's podcast and Jay Glazer has like been working closely with out Smith in like this rehabilitation program. And Glazer was almost selling the idea that out wanted to return to the NFL, that he could return to the NFL. Well, most likely here's his opportunity and it's with none other than the Dallas Cowboys.
2: I mean, it's a crazy, unique situation. Uh, it's not a perfect Comparison to say he's like the defensive version of Josh Gordon because Aldon's uh, off-the-field issues have been a lot more serious. Um, it's been a lot longer since he's played. Uh, he hasn't played a single down of football since 2015. Um, now he's on the wrong side of 30. He's 31. But, I mean, we all know he's one of the biggest freak athletes probably of the 21st century in the NFL. He's a super unique, rare athlete. And... It's kind of like if anyone can do it, he can. And, you know, the mileage argument, you know, this is five years where he has not been in like peak football shape, but it it is five years too where he wasn't adding, you know, all these hits on his body. So he should still be in reasonably good shape. Um, It's kind of at this point, the classic, this would have been high risk a few years ago, but you know, now there's no, there's no longer any risk with signing Alden Smith as a, an edge rushing flyer for your team. And yeah, really fascinating, uh, I mean, I'm a Mizzou alum, as you know, and uh, he was freaky even at Mizzou. He's always been like a rare kind of special athlete. and
0: And I think the Cowboys need something like this to work out because, you know, they lost basically two of their top three pass rushers other than Demarcus Lawrence. Like they lost Robert Quinn. They lost Malik Collins, both of those players got paid and, and for agency. So like getting Aldon to work on this very, very cheap deal or Randy Gregory, who's also trying to get back into the NFL that needs to work because, you know, they also went out and signed older veterans and, and Gerald McCoy, who I actually think played quite well with Carolina last year, but another Carolina defensive tackle and, and Dontari Poe. So like with this team spending so much on Dak and Amari And re upping those contracts and Zeke, obviously, they need one of those pieces to like emerge out of nowhere defensively on like a cheap contract. And maybe Aldon can do that. It's odd though, Pat, because it's not just, you know, marijuana with Aldon Smith, right? Like it has been much deeper and more drastic than that. And so while like the league has become much more generous generous in, in their allowance for marijuana in the new CBA, that wasn't what was necessarily holding back Aldon recently. So I obviously truly hope that um, all these positive news that Jake Glazer is putting out is absolutely true. Because like you said, some of this stuff was very, very serious. And
2: what a the Cowboys? I feel like the Cowboys, especially with their defensive line, it's always just a high
0: wire act. High upside, big name athletes like yeah, kind yeah. of the Al Davis of the defensive side of the ball He's, is like what Jerry Jones is trying to like replicate right now. I would say like f- signing
2: Alden Smith in 2020 is basically the equivalent of trying to find money in the banana stand. Uh, like it's just uh, for all are there still Arrested Development fans out there? I don't know. Is that too old? I, at this I actually point? did
0: not know what reference you were making. Uh, it's from so Development, I'm glad you explained um, it.
2: Yes, uh, most people. It's pretty embarrassing, Josh, for someone in their 30s to not know that reference
0: early 30s, but but we move on. Chargers coach Anthony Lynn said that Tyrod slash Tarod Taylor is, quote, in the driver's seat to start this upcoming season. Uh, the official quote is this from Lynn. Quote, he's in the driver's seat, but nothing is finalized. Pat, do you buy this from the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers?
2: I really do. I mean, if it's true, then they want to be in the driver's seat for like the number 14 overall pick um, next year. Which would be an odd goal for the season, but to I me, mean, Terod he got a didn't get a fair shake as a starter, really, as we know. But I mean, he's kind of He's kind of like a different style player, but I mean, he's kind of like an Andy Dalton level talent, where he's good enough to start for a while, but should ideally be like one of the league's best backups. And to me, that's what Terod Taylor is, and. Even the way – even though the quote seems strong um, from Anthony Lynn, like using like the phrase driver's seat at this time in the offseason is pretty standard coach speak. I mean it's not like – it sounds like a strong commitment, but it's really not committing to anything obviously. So – I would still not be surprised um, whatsoever to see the Chargers sign a quarterback, draft a quarterback, maybe do both even.
0: Right. That's what stood out to me is that he didn't like slam the door shut. And when a team doesn't slam the door shut on other pieces, especially at quarterback being added, that stands out to me that another one is going to be added. Now, I think it has slammed the door shut in Cam Newton because if – this team was going to add a, a veteran quarterback, then you really don't say anything about Taylor uh, where I think it points to is the number six overall pick in this draft. And I have kept saying it that like Justin Herbert to the chargers makes way too much sense to me. And I will always go back to what Tom Telesco said When he drafted Joey Bosa, that I wanted to draft you for two years, that you've been on my board for two (laughs) years. And then we had at the combine, Kim Jones say that a team has been out there with Justin Herbert as their number one quarterback in these last two draft classes. And maybe I am... You know, just have this board on my wall that I'm connecting with red yarn. It would not be surprising at all if the Chargers were that team that has believed in Justin Herbert for not just one year, but two years.
2: Real quick, how do you have an Always Sunny reference ready, but you don't know an Arrested Development reference?
0: No, that was was just like any murder, mystery, serial killer reference that I just made. Was that another thing?
2: No, I mean, I thought you were referring to the Charlie Day famous uh, Twitter. No image or gif of him at the conspiracy board um nope. does justin herbert really make sense for any team josh would be my question still <laughs> there uh, are a lot of people
0: huh? that like justin herbert he's he's a fascinating one i
2: he is to be fair i haven't like fully like dove and i feel like i'm late on that everything's all my schedule's all out of whack with this stupid pandemic uh, i've been wanting to dive in deeper on justin herbert but you know my feelings from several years of casual pack 12 uh football watching at eleven p.m. Eastern on Saturday nights was not
0: the biggest Justin Herbert fan. So we'll see. I, I was on Sims's podcast talking about him and it's it's easy as it is to, you know, compare players who went to the same school, you know, there are some similarities to what Marcus brought to the table in that it's this player with like all the tools, a tremendous athlete, a great arm, but like that that playmaker mentality necessarily isn't there. And like when everything is broken down around him. He doesn't have that like confidence to be like, okay, now is the time that I'm going to carry this play and and make it work even when it's not supposed to work. And Pat, like maybe you can speak in this, the longer I do this, the more I realize that like, that is this confidence that it is a personality trait rather than a tool of athleticism or a big arm or whatever else. Cause we see a lot of those types not having that success to overcome a single play adversity and make some magic when really no one else could in those times.
2: Yeah, to be an NFL quarterback, you need absolute belief in yourself. we well, see. I don't when I think of Justin Herbert, I think of like Josh Allen type head scratching
0: throws sometimes too. Maybe I'm way off base, but I think you're sometimes on base with just throwing the ball, but it's very different in their mentality because Josh Allen is like, yeah, this pedal to the floor player who doesn't understand or comprehend that a play could go poorly. Like he is going (laughs) to make something happen no matter what. Whereas I think at times Herbert, while the arm can be special, he can be like really passive. In his play and like doesn't have the tools show up often enough.
2: There were just times where I'd see a pass and be like, why did that just like, why was that?
0: That's absolutely fair.
2: I'm just trying to unwind on a Saturday night watching some ESPN2. Why is this on my TV?
0: Let's go to Tennessee Titans. GM John Robinson, I'm assuming had some Zoom call or a media call with local beat reporters and was very honest actually in his team's um, approach to Judevian Clowney saying he's been in contact with Clowney's agents. Uh, Pat, this is uh, on tap with another report from the Seattle times that there's quote, a growing thought around the league that Jadavian Clowney could wait until training camp to sign. I could absolutely see that happen one because of just the state of the world we're in right now, but two, we've kind of heard through the grapevine over the years. And I, it was, must've been Bill O'Brien's biggest issue with Jadavian Clowney that like, You know, he's not at his best early in the season that he's even better when the season winds down. And so it wouldn't be surprising at all with or without OTAs if Clowney does make his mark and find his landing spot when we roll around maybe in July.
2: He might be a player that's just getting straight up coronavirus basically where he has such a complicated health history. You know, teams, players now quite frequently uh, will agree to terms without making a visit. But I just wouldn't be surprised if even a player of Clowney's stature, if teams just want to know and have certainty about his health history and do their own physical, you know, before leaking they've agreed to terms, you know, or definitely officially announcing a signing. And I just think that might be a big factor with him, too, that teams just want to get him in the building, basically. And maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe it's all financial. But it just, to me, I would understand a team wanting to do their own physical, n- not to some independent doctor of Jadavian Clowney uh, before handing out that kind of money.
0: Exactly where Cam Newton is right now.
2: I was going to say, it's it truly the same thing with Cam.
0: It's not the foot with Cam, and I understand he's like past the physical. It's it's the shoulder. The shoulder, Cam. 100%. And it's, it is absolutely doctors inside of a building, the team staff wanting to get their own look at the shoulder and like their own feel of the shoulder. And you can't probably just do that with a physical that, you know, you and I can probably pass.
2: Do you think, do you think we could pass an NFL physical? And maybe I have like some undiagnosed softball injuries. It did hurt really badly when I threw for like a year. And then one day, like some scar tissue just like shook loose and everything was fine. So,
0: you know, with how much they poke and prod you, I bet I would walk away injured. From an NFL <laughs> physical rather than figuring out if I have any injuries. All right, let's close out looking towards the future. Uh, the athletics ed, is it Bouchette or Bouchette? I'm going to say, say Bouchette. Bouchette. predicts the Steelers will allow Juju Smith Schuster to walk following the 2020 season. Um, I mean, Pat, this is getting out there, um, in front, obviously, Juju had a down 2019 season. I would say so much of that is because of Duck Hodges and Mason Rudolph and so on and so forth. But another part of that is, you know, this was a team that was going to be without Antonio Browns. They're going to ask Juju to do more than just operate the slot, most likely. Do you see this as believable? Where do you stand on Juju not being a member of the Steelers following the season?
2: I mean, just look at all the variables Juju had last year, You know, adjusting to life as the alpha number one, losing his quarterback in week one, then changing quarterbacks several times throughout the season, playing hurt a lot. Uh, so it's kind of, to me, you just throw that season out, obviously, and it seems far out there. You know, I don't want to far out, not just in terms of the timetable, but like far out and it seems implausible that uh, he's so young and we've already seen such high upside from him. But, you know, this is the same GM who let Emmanuel Sanders go, let Mike Wallace go, let Santonio Holmes go, let Plaxico Burris go. Uh, so the Steelers do have a quite long tradition of not paying in-house receiver talent. But to me, Juju, just see, there's no heir apparent yet um, for Juju. And he's he's so young. It's just... and. I just have a hard time. I think the Steelers will. The Steelers are always kind of in a complicated salary cap situation, but uh, they're kind of like the Saints in that regard. But I think think Juju Smith-Schuster will be in Pittsburgh uh, beyond 2020.
0: It's a good point you made on how many have departed the Steelers and that because of that and a reason for that is because they kind of had the heir apparent already lined up. Like this has been one of the best – wide receiver evaluating teams over the last few years, maybe other than Lima Swede and maybe other than James Washington. <laughs> um, but it makes me excited to see what Deontay Johnson does this year, uh, a, a player they, I believe took on day two and really didn't get to do anything again because of quarterback situation, but maybe he emerges as that other player um in this offense, And Bouchette also added that, that the prediction was based on how Juju values himself versus how the Steelers value him. So that's, you know, when things get spicy and dicey in NFL circles and the attachment to one team.
2: And Bouchette, too, is not just some ordinary uh, beat writer. He has been following the Steelers for decades. So he's very plugged into the situation. So he knows a lot more about it than me, but I still find it a little far-fetched.
0: So let me ask you this because obviously Juju's super young still. He's under 24 years old. He's the youngest Um, player in the NFL. Yeah, he was. Um, Okay. Looking at wide receivers and how they're paid. I'm going to ask you to slot him in with this group. Let me read you the top 10 or so. And I want you to answer if you think he deserves to be in this group. Okay. Julio Jones, Amari Cooper, Michael Thomas, Tyree kill, Odell is a top five. Then it's AJ Green, Mike Evans, Brandon Cooks, DeAndre Hopkins, and Adam Thielen. Um, This is all based on just singular average salary cap figure per year. I can totally see him in that group that mentioned Brandon Cooks and Adam Thielen, obviously, because certainly DeAndre Hopkins shortly is going to get a new contract. But And Sammy Watkins is just uh, that Jarvis Landry. But I, I mean, I wonder... I don't think Juju's going to accept anything outside that top 5 wide receiver money. That's for sure.
2: No, and I already it's when you list 10 names I've already forgotten the first 5 names, but I think it was Amari Cooper in the top 5. I I would pay Juju Smith-Schuster more money than Amari Cooper to be honest. <laughs> um I mean that might be overvaluing what he did in 2018, but to me, I mean we saw like number 1 overall fantasy wide receiver upside I thought from Juju Smith-Schuster in 2018, something we've never seen from Amari Cooper and not to conflate fantasy with the real life. I mean, Amari Cooper has proven himself to be a very versatile, valuable, uh, deservedly well-paid receiver. But I do think that he deserves to be in that group. And I, I, after 2020, I think it'll be pretty clear that Juju Smith Schuster should probably be one of the six or seven highest paid receivers in the NFL. And maybe I'm just overrating everything that happened when Antonio Brown, I was drawing, you know, so much defensive attention, but it's really hard to ignore when a player uh, at that age does what Juju Smith-Schuster did, not only in 2018, but also 2017.
1: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble, betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that.
2: If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on
0: AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Ben Fennell, hello. How are you, man?
3: Josh Norris, it's a pleasure joining you <laughs> in, in, the, in the midst of draft season here, even though it really doesn't feel like it as we've been quarantined for a couple of weeks here. But it is April. It's uh, crazy to believe that.
0: I know, just like three weeks until the draft, I believe, something like that. Since you mentioned quarantine, let me ask you this. Since we have been in our homes for about two or three weeks, obviously we both have dogs, what has Ben Fennell learned about Ben Fennel in that time?
3: Oh, that's a really great question. That's kind of a deep question there. I've, I've learned that I can still be productive and entertain myself and even the, you know, the most unique situations. You know, If you ever have that moment of life where you're like, I could just do this if I had time, You got to get it done now. There's no excuses to do anything. You still got to be productive every day, put on a pair of pants, make to do lists, uh, you know, and just it's business as usual. Um, And I don't know if I've really had any serious kumbayas with myself, but, you know, it's been been nice to have some downtime. And the quarantine has been very good to my 2021 prospect sheet. So I'm way ahead (laughs) on next year's draft. Um, but I haven't done a whole lot of self-reflection there. You know, the second huh. I, I get a little deep, you know, I go right to the puzzle and put my mind somewhere else, you know,
0: got it. Um, well, you're way ahead of me. I'm still focused on 2020 and I actually asked you on this podcast, without well, even telling you what we were going to do. And you said yes before you even knew. So one, I appreciate that. But then you and I kind of came up with this idea. I pitched it to you in 2019, you know, there were a lot of these players and prospects, that were drafted outside of round one. They 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 weren't the top at their position, but they came in and had significant roles and, and impacts with their team in just their rookie year. So we'll go through each on the 2019 side. And then I want to ask you if there are a counterpart in 2020, if there's a player that can do that exact same thing in that exact same role or similar to it in 2020. You know this, Ben. W- watching the NFL every single week, teams like to take successful players and roles and traits that other teams have found and try to find their own version of that. So we're going to help them do that in this episode. Does that sound fine with
3: you? Absolutely. And I love this conversation and this narrative because sometimes in order to look forward, you do have to look back. And there's this misconception that player comps and styles are more of a media narrative with the draft, but go back and look at that Monday morning quarterback article with Chris Ballard last year. And he praises some of his scouts for their deep library of NFL comps and knowing history and traits. And I think that's really important. It's not saying we're predicting careers or he's going to be identical to this, but finding a mold, a skill set, a usage, how they were using college and projecting forward is the name of the game. And I think it's really fun and healthy to kind of look back while projecting forward with these uh, new prospects.
0: I love it. And in some ways, I mean, I've only been doing this for seven, eight, nine years. But you've kind of realized some draft narratives and and types and players are are cyclical, um, like they regenerate themselves sometimes. And uh, maybe we can find some that, again, scratch that itch that some teams have regret of passing up 2019 types and maybe landing them in 2020. And I I think the best place to start with that was the 49ers second round pick last year uh, in Debo Samuel. When I went and watched Debo to start – 2019 I saw a player who obviously won in the exact same ways he did at South Carolina after the catch ball in his hands much more physical and aggressive than you see a lot of wide receivers in that area but then, as the season went along he started adding like more and more pieces and, and layers to his game I thought and was given more responsibility in that Kyle Shanahan 49ers offense and it was just cool to see that transition that growth and just you know 15, 16 games in a rookie season.
3: Yeah, he was obviously one of the more productive players on that Super Bowl team with the San Francisco 49ers. Um, But I think also projecting a role and putting these guys in positions to be successful is the name of the game. He was obviously a 4-4 player coming out of South Carolina, but he wasn't a receiver that you said, I'm going to line him up outside the numbers and ask him to win against man coverage or win vertically. And despite running a 4-4-8, I think he only caught three passes, over 20 yards down the field last year. So as much as we want to call it manufacturing touches, it's really just putting guys in positions to be successful with their skill set. And I think Debo's skill set, man, I saw him up close, I think four or five times in the last two years in his college career. This guy is a running back body in a receiver package. He is a big bubble bud, a thick lower half. And that's where that yards after catch comes into play as a returner, the gadget stuff in the backfield, not only being a vertical stretch, but the horizontal stretching and making defenses cover every green grass left to right as well is part of the name of the game. And I think that's what Debo did a really good job for Kyle Shanahan, the RPO game, the quick game, the screen game. And the only way to catch that ball confidently and get yards after catch is to have secure, reliable hands. And that's what Debo Samuel did at South Carolina. And he brought that immediately day one to the San Francisco 49ers.
0: That distinction that you made about manufactured touches, I I think is really important because like when I think manufactured touches, I I think of like Ty Montgomery back at Stanford or, you know, Tavon Austin in some ways at at West Virginia, someone who, you know, was winning on, on jet sweeps or or that action or, or screens near the line of scrimmage Um, with Debo I think he was the perfect piece that Kyle Shanahan was looking for, obviously, and then acquired because Kyle is so good at creating free space in the middle of the field or in those first five to seven to 10 yards. And when you are able to get someone like Debo on the move, then with the ball in his hands and allowing him to then use that stature that we talked about to impose himself on those smaller defensive backs ones who don't want to hit as much as he does, it was the perfect marriage. And, and I think that's why he played such a pivotal part in their Super Bowl contending run. So and I
3: think it's such an outlier as far as evaluating the prospect, because when you're talking about receiver in the NFL, what do you want? Length, route running ability, the ability yeah. to go vertical. Those are three things that really are not under the Debo Samuel, you know, trait, uh, you know, hopper right there. Those aren't the things that he does particularly well. So you have to put him in positions to be successful. And I'm so, 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 so glad you brought up Tavon Austin because he's my working case study of an explosive, dynamic athlete that was not put in positions to be successful in the NFL. I don't want to throw verticals to a 5'10 receiver outside the numbers. And that's what they <laughs> did for early in his career in St. Louis. They didn't use yeah. him in that gadget uh, you know, aspect. If Tavon Austin was on the 2019 San Francisco 49ers, he'd look like Debo Samuel. So I think it's also important to put these guys in positions to use that skill set.
0: So we talked about the traits for Debo Samuel, and really the one that I'm thinking most of is yards after the catch. When you studied this 2020 group, who drew your eye to those similar traits? Who could maybe be um, a player that can go into a role, and obviously not everyone is, is lucky enough to... Uh, be attached to someone like Kyle Shanahan. But if someone was, who maybe could be as successful,
3: do you think? You know, I've been a hawk over this group because, number one, my infatuation for Debo Samuel. Number two, the two teams I cover pretty closely, the Green Bay Packers and the Philadelphia Eagles, I think both need this style of player in their offense. Hmm. For lack of a better word, I call them gadget players. And, you know, we can point to Jalen Rieger or LaVishka Chenault or Devin DuVarnay, but we're talking yards after catch, Let's go right to the leader in the country in yards after catch and Antonio Gibson at yes. the University of Memphis who seemed yes. to be a a late riser, you know, being a Conference USA guy, but he's 6 foot, 228, running 439. This guy is a running back and a slot receiver package. Now, a lot of people have him in the running back group, but he lined up in the slot 79% of the times last year. Was one of four players to have 300 rushing yards, 500 receiving yards. So the dual threat ability the explosiveness with the ball in his hands, the screen game. We already spoke to the yards after catch. Really good contact balance. I think he's he's a guy that took over that Tony Pollard type of hybrid role from the University of Memphis and Mike Norvell, who's now on his way to Florida State. Uh, you know, I think Gibson fits that to a T. And you know, we could also go into the Lynn Bowden Juniors or the Joe Reed. Who Joe Reed, six foot two twenty four, ran four four seven. If this wasn't such a deep receiver group, Joe Reed would be one of the darlings of this draft, but just a very deep group. And there's a lot of shapes and sizes in this gadget group.
0: If I were a better host, Ben, I would have led by saying, I don't know what your answers are going to be. And you don't know what my <laughs> answers are going to be because my answer was the exact same player. It's Antonio Gibson. I, I recently posted my top 50, my 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 first batch of rankings and Antonio Gibson is, is on that list. And He's a player that where you see him win at the college level, that translates to the NFL. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the vast majority of his snaps were at slot receiver because, yes, he's being mentioned by so many people in that running back group. He's in those rankings for other people. But, Ben, when you watched him, didn't you see some natural receiver qualities from Antonio Gibson as well? Like he was catching balls out of the slot, across the middle of the field, away from his body, you know, changing that momentum when working across the formation to then flipping his back shoulder and catching the ball away from his (laughs) chest.
3: He did a lot of those surprising things that kind of Pollard did that, you know, I wrote down surprisingly good route runner speed cuts accelerates through the catch point comes downhill and catches the ball aggressively and confidently knows how to attack leverages. These are not the things you typically write down of these gadget style of players that You typically have to manufacture a touch for them because they aren't a nuanced nuanced route runner. Um, But when you're looking at these type of dual threat guys and in the past who have had 300 and 500 in college, that's Randall Cobb. That's Tavon Austin. That's Curtis Samuel. This is a who's who of explosive players. And Antonio Gibson, I think, fits right into that mold the foundation if you have a player
0: that you know with the ball in his hands can make things happen and can create in his own right like 17 broken tackles and 38 catches last year according to PFF but then he also like brings that Added element of intrigue where there are all those are those natural elements and and moments where he's like seamlessly hauling in a catch and and then transitioning to upfield or like having these acrobatic catches in traffic and is unafraid of you know deep safeties closing in on him at the catch point. That makes me really excited. I'm fascinated to see I have no idea, I have no gauge on where Gibson is going to land in this class it would be surprising to me if he does end up in the early second round, like where Debo Samuel went off the board, but no matter where he does end up, if it's with the right play caller like Debo and Kyle were, then I, I think we could see some really, really fun things in just his rookie season.
3: Yeah. I think someone's going to fall in love with him in that on that day too, but I put it out on Twitter a couple of days ago. If for some reason the Packers take him at 30, I'm not going to be the one that's surprised. And love I just want to make sure everybody else is aware that, that this guy is a playmaker. And just because he's at the University of Memphis and it's a deep receiver group, I'm not going to be the one surprised if he does squeeze into the first round. He really has that type of ability.
0: There was another rookie wide receiver last year who was not a first-round pick. I believe he was in the 60s. And that is DK Metcalf, who for the long time in the process was mentioned in that first tier of wide receivers. Obviously, that did not come to fruition during Draft weekend. Um, I think you and I can both agree that there's many unique elements to DK Metcalf's evaluation from last year. I mean, he, out of Ole Miss, played on one side of the formation, obviously, this uber athlete, but the athletic profile um, had questions. And I think, you know, sitting here and watching what DK did during his rookie season the normal NFL fans are going to wonder why he was questioned so much. And I think an element of that is fine. Like focusing on the negatives and letting it overpower an evaluation. Yes, there's something to be said for that, but there's also something to be said for what the Seahawks plan for DK Metcalf was last season. Like you watch this first, Four to six games and he was doing exactly what he was asked to do at Ole Miss, right? He he was locked into the left side of the formation. Everything was off that vertical plane. They were asking him to win then in the slot on the left side vertically in those red zone situations. And so they weren't asking him to do anything that he was uncomfortable with until... He showed he could do it. And that kind of happened in the second half of last season. Did, did you see the exact same thing when you watched him this year?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's always that kind of conversation with some college players to say, you know what? They didn't show us this on Saturdays, but that doesn't necessarily mean they can't do it. Um, And I think you get guys like that every year. And DK was obviously in that, you know, left side offense at Ole Miss and was, you know, more of a stop and go type of receiver there. And you want guys – that are linear fast to be on that vertical plane. So I completely understand, uh, you know, applying him to that skill set and to that role. But I was really impressed with, you know, his development uh, down the stretch of the season and adding to his route tree. And I still think he's going to be a linear vertical plane receiver, but that's okay. I think that still has a place. It's as long as you're putting in positions to be successful and not trying to turn him into somebody he's not.
0: So there's obviously not a DK Metcalf in every single draft class. But if we're looking from a purely athletic profile standpoint, Jalen Rieger was very similar in that they both were very explosive in a straight line. They, their jumps were incredible and then their agilities were well below average. They were very questionable. Now let me ask you this Ben, because there is a massive size difference between Jalen Rieger and DK Metcalf. Rieger is about three or four inches shorter. He's about 20 pounds lighter And while, you know, the majority of DK's receptions were because he just out-athleted other people, some of them were also because of his natural size along with the athleticism. I don't think Rieger is going to be able to offer, obviously, that same contested catch size and natural ability there, but their usage in college is also quite different. We talked about Metcalf being locked into one side of the formation. Rieger was used on those... Actions across the formation and and getting him the ball near the line of scrimmage, which to me, if I'm remembering correctly, was quite different than Metcalf.
3: You know, that's really interesting. I thought for sure we were going to have the same player here to a T, hmm. and I did not expect you to go down the Jalen Rieger road here. That's a really interesting conversation, and I think it's a little bit different for me because while I look at DK, what did you do at Ole Miss? Let's try to replicate that in a small sample size. I actually think Jalen Rieger is going to be used completely different in the NFL that he was used in college. Now, for a 5'10", 190-pound receiver, he lined up wide 85% of the time in his college career. They did not do him any services by not playing him in a high volume in the slot or in the backfield, helping out a young freshman quarterback this past year. Uh, I just would see these opposite hash go routes, and before the ball's even gone, I'm like angry at what they're doing with this kid. Uh, I think he'll be more of that gadget <laughs> player in the NFL that he really wasn't used at TCU as yep. much as he should have been. He was a little bit early in his career, but uh, I think Jalen Rieger, that's a really interesting conversation. But just to quickly spin it to I th- who I thought we would both have in this conversation, being a big upright receiver, 230 pounds, a 4'4 player, linear explosive, small production chair, Chase Claypool out of the the University of Notre Dame, I thought fits what DK kind of represents and what he, uh, his projection into the NFL kind of was all about.
0: I have Chase Claypool's name written down just under Jalen Rieger. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you brought him up. I'm a big fan of Chase Claypool. I don't know what you think of his evaluation and what pieces can translate. And obviously the production was low. Contested catch, back shoulder, jump ball throws, basically at every part of the field with Chase Claypool's game. And I think he offers you that. But what also Notre Dame, this little detail, what they used with them, too, was like these vertical routes with everyone else to clear out space. And then they would get Claypool on the move. And you mentioned his size. You mentioned his speed. So getting a player of that mammoth moving is is something that defenses then don't want to slow down. And while, you know, he's certainly not shifty after the catch, that's tough to halt.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Claypool, to be perfectly honest with you. On tape, I have names written down like Riley Cooper, Devin hmm. Kajus. I think his ceiling and upside was like a Vincent Jackson type of player. That's exactly but, who I've written down. as. But a he CO. wrote, he ran four four two and jumped 40 and a half. And now everybody's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is an explosive special player right here. But I didn't see a 4-4-2 player on tape. And mm. if anything, he used that on special teams more than he did as a receiver. So I have a bit of buyer beware. And I'm interested to see who gets him, how he's used. Will he be more of a flex tight end red zone option? Can he run down on special teams for you? I really would rather a Michael Pittman or a Colin Johnson, if we're being perfectly honest, if we're just going off of the tape. And each year somebody blows away the combine that gets you a little bit drunk on what you saw on the tape and gets you reaching just a little bit. And Clay- Chase Claypool, big player, explosive player, a nice player, I think we're just a little bit overvalued right now with how he tested.
0: Uh, guilty, first of all. Second, <laughs> uh, would Brandon Ayuk be a name that might fit in here as well?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think anytime you're going for those kind of flash in the pan, one-year players, you're really projecting a lot of their upside. And, uh, you know, Ayuk, I- another guy with an explosive element, but just left a little bit of question on his on his full evaluation on to say, he only did it one year. Why was that? He was stuck behind Kyle Williams and Akil Harry. Why couldn't he get on the field? He was only used in certain ways at Arizona State. So, there's more questions than kind of answers with some of these prospects. And I think that's these hopper of players, the DKs, the Chase Claypools, the Jalen Riegers to say, you know what, they're good players. We just have a little bit more questions about their projection.
0: So that wraps up Debo Samuel and DK Metcalf. There's one other receiver name that I want to hit on. And I I sent you this list and I wouldn't be surprised when you read it, you kind of snickered because I think this is a player type that is – in every single draft class. And in fact, there might be multiple of these players in every single draft class, but that's Hunter Renfro, obviously a third day selection by the Oakland Raiders last year. A opportunity probably met quality of play here with Hunter Renfro, and that's what equaled production more than probably isolated traits. Do you think that's fair to say?
3: Yeah, I think that's fair. Are you saying that more in a Clemson or more of a uh, Las Vegas sense?
0: Yes, more of a Oakland Raiders sense.
3: Yeah, but I I guess it's true in both, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah. The one name, and this is a crush of mine uh, as we go through this process, and it gets me excited. And hopefully you have watched him, but Darnell Mooney from Tulane, 5'10", 176. And whenever I watch Mooney, who I haven't seen anyone discuss, um, I see so many similarities to Jamison Crowder. And maybe this is like some aesthetic comparison, but it's like those kind of springy legs, a guy who was also asked to play quite a bit on the outside at Tulane, like Jamison Crowder was at Duke. But in those moments when the separation was not created or the ball was too late and a, a defender did close, he is willing to go up and get the football in those tight, compact, contested situations, and oftentimes came down with it, and he's an above-average athlete. So Darnell Mooney is is one of my favorites in this class.
3: All right. Josh, if I didn't like you, I'd humor you, I'd agree with you, but I like you a lot. So I know I can challenge you and and be a little contentious here and there. So what are we talking about with Hunter Renfro? We're talking about a day-three player, possession receiver, underneath guy, QB's best friend, completely limited athletically and explosively. So when I look at a Darnell Mooney, I have him in my explosive slot receiver category. He has 152 catches and averaged 16.7 yards on 150 catches. Now, does that mean he caught it and ran, took the top off the defense, outside the numbers? It was a little bit of everything. He's a really interesting player. I think he has a little bit more of an explosive element. I have two receivers here that I was really excited to share because I think they both fit... This category to a T. The first is KJ Hill, Ohio State. Six foot, 196, runs a 4'6, doesn't have that, you know, exceptional athletic profile, but really good hands, QB's best friend, all sorts of one-handed catches, back shoulder, down by your ankles, caught for Justin Fields, Dwayne Haskins, JT Barrett. He's a guy that I think is going to be a day three player and just carve out a good role on somebody's offense. Can I guess the other one? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, James Prosch from SMU.
3: Yeah, I actually had him written down and he raced it. Um, okay. He didn't test the combine. I didn't have all his metrics. So I left him off. But I'm going to go with the guy with the little baby hands, just like Hunter Renfro. This guy had eight and seven eights hands. Aaron Fuller out of Washington who's 5'11", 188, ran 4.59, just like Hunter Renfro, and just like K.J. Hill, slot receiver, all sorts of acrobatic one-handed catches, a great junk ball receiver, just like a Danny Amendola can go down and make those tough catches, just like Hunter Renfro. But these are guys that I think are going to be quarterback's best friends underneath receivers, but I don't know where they get drafted, if they even get drafted. So I think they're day three priority free agents just based on the, the 2020 receiver group.
0: Uh, you are absolutely valid in calling me out. I really just wanted an opportunity to talk about Darnell Mooney because I haven't seen anyone else do He's it. He's a fun so. player.
3: I watched him on tape and was like, whoa, look at this kid, explosive. I have him right next to Jeff Thomas as an explosive slot receiver. Yeah,
0: springy. All right, let's escape the wide receiver position, move over to the defensive side of the football. Uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson was outside of a top 100 selection And I don't think that that was necessarily based on talent. I think if you only drafted by talent, he would have gone much earlier in the draft. He was still a surprise on day three that he was still on the board. But coming out of Florida, it was this big nickel slot safety. Whatever you asked for him to do, he he could probably do it. And he was aggressive moving forward. Is that the same player that you saw during his rookie season, Ben?
3: Yeah. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't too much of a hawk with the New Orleans Saints defense. I know he kind of worked his way into more of a uh, regular presence there on the back end. But I think just that versatile player that can guard the slot or be a back end player. He played in a very complex defense for Todd Grantham at Florida, had to wear a lot of different hats uh, there. And I think that type of player and experience is what you got on Sundays, especially late into the season as he carved out more of a role.
0: Why is that? I mean, you watch so much football around the league. Why is that role, that big slot or third safety or whatever you want to call it, that hybrid, becoming so popular across the league right now?
3: Well, we know it's no secret it's a sub package league. And what that's, that means is we want to get into nickel and dime and get our defensive backs. But that position particularly is evolving right in front of our eyes. Because we used to need to match up with the the Wes Welkers and Victor Cruz's and those short, small slot dynamic receivers, the Brandon Stokely's. So we put our small, shifty corner on that guy. Well, now suddenly that was a liability on defense, and teams are running at that small defender, especially it was a middle-of-the-field defender. We can't let that be a liability. So now that nickel is turned into a third safety. We want a safety with size that can cover that isn't a liability against the run. I think everybody wants that kind of Malcolm Jenkins style of defensive back that, you know, is larger than your small corner at that nickel position and there's a mm-hmm. lot of things you can do with them. They're in a nucleus of the defense to not only cover blitz, run defender and just be an impact player. That's a very very crucial position and as we're getting into a sub package league he's on the field a little bit more than your Will Linebacker is these days. So it's becoming a more impactful position, a more important position uh, across the league.
0: So just reviewing prior draft classes can be tough to find this type of player, multiple of them every single year. Uh, This draft, I think, is loaded with them. There's like a handful, if not more, uh, on players' players that you can find in day one, day two, and day three that have actually been asked to do this at the college level, you know, line up at free, line up in the box, line up in the slot, even rush off the edge, do all those types of things. So Ben, if you were to try to find that player in this class, who would you point to?
3: So a couple of years ago, it was one of my favorites in this style and that's Desmond King at the university of Iowa. I thought yes. he's turned into one of the best nickel big safeties in the NFL and a lot of these players, those small corners, the 179 Levante Taylors at Florida State, they used to be your nickels. Now they're getting moving to free safety because they're too small. So I look at guys like a Terrell Burgess at Utah, who's 5'11", 202, ran 4'46", did everything. Played in the slot, played in the box, was a free safety, played special teams. He could play halfway in like a cover two. He could play man coverage on slots and tight ends. He has great instincts. I think a lot about that Chauncey Gardner-Johnson interception against Michigan in the bowl game last year, where he kind of bit inside and spun off and caught an interception on the post on the backside. bunch of plays that Terrell Burgess has made as well, where he shows his instincts like that. He just has a great understanding of zone coverage, route combinations, doesn't panic when the ball is in the air. I wrote down a lot of similar things for Chauncey Gardner-Johnson as I did for Terrell Burgess. The one issue is he's really just a one-year player. He got caught behind Marquise Blair and Marcus Williams in front of him on a really deep Utah defense. But I think as you're digging into him, he's a really intriguing player that checks a lot of, balls, a lot of boxes for it.
0: That's the first name I've written down. This is fun. I mean,
3: <laughs> it, you and
0: I, again, did not compare notes prior to this, and, and we're along the same lines with just about everyone. Um, yeah, Terrell Burgess, 16% of the snaps at free safety, 36 is a box safety, 36% of the time in the slot. Uh, take that Oregon game, for example, against Justin Herbert. They basically asked him, Utah did, to travel against the opposing tight end in the big slot, um, and I think he is at his best in coverage. Like you said, anticipating – baiting, um, just a nice feel when moving backwards. My question to you is this been, because the more I watched, the more questions I had about him aggressively closing on ball carriers or when a wide receiver gets it, or when the running back gets it, so on and so forth, um, he's kind of tentative in that area. And while I don't think that that is the number one piece of whatever position he's going to play in the NFL it's kind of this push and pull of evaluation, isn't it? Right? Like where to me, I have this major hesitation in his game that he he's kind of passive in that area is the, probably the best word for it. And I don't want that to overrule everything else, but it does give me hesitation. So I'm trying to figure out how much to value it. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah. And that's really fair. I have written down, not the dictator. And yes. that's what I mean in contact and that he's really not the initiator. But because of that, I really like his play ID and processing. He gets himself into the right spots, just a little bit passive at the point of attack and really pulling the trigger. And that does worry me. I would rather the reckless guy and pull back the reins as opposed to making the timid guy a little bit more aggressive. A lot of that really is who you are waking up in the morning. and It's tough to kind of change that mental makeup. But this draft has a lot of interesting guys. I could have very easily gone with a Kavon Wallace that's the, other, that's the other name I've written down. I really like, you know, some <laughs> other guys I have huge crushes on, like Nigel Warrior at University of Tennessee. Good players on bad teams, always get misevaluated. Another guy, Brian Cole in Mississippi State, the Michigan transfer, was a four-star receiver. Physical, physical nickel safety player in the middle of the field. This draft has tons of players in this mold.
0: Yeah, with Burgess, obviously I'm always going to look at where a player succeeds, but yeah, I I think not being the dictator is a good way of putting it. He just gets a little complacent when stuck on blocks. Uh, Quickly, let's talk about Kayvon Wallace. 18% of his snaps at free safety, 30% in the box, 46% in the slot. I went back and watched before this, his game against Ohio State. He... Would flow between like take taking these poor angles and run support that would allow like these long J.K. Dobbins runs, I believe. But then the next snap, you see him like really anticipate and drive on the football and beat the receiver to the catch point. Then another time, you see a bad angle that ended up as a long run for J.K. Dobbins. Then another snap, you see him track the over route and make it up space and closing the football. In the red zone, those instincts are there. So if he just like eliminates those minor mistakes, which I don't think is a bad part of his game, I, I think he might even be over aggressive and sometimes his angle is just off and he can't recover in that instance against the run. But, um, Wallace was someone who is fiery, who obviously is a leader on that Clemson team and was a lot of fun to watch.
3: Yeah, know a lot of that is kind of just leveraging his help, and that stuff's coachable. He's obviously a smart guy, 45 career games for Brent Venable, done some internships with Cisco and the NFL. I love the All-State. He was an All-State player and both sides of the ball in high school, receiver and DB, so you know he's not afraid when that ball gets in the air. He's just a guy that checks every box as far as pedigree, off-field, mental makeup, experience. The only things I have written down, I just, you know, I worry about his recovery speed. He's really just a four, five, five type of guy. He's a little short, short arms, had minimal production coming into this year, but kind of made up for it. But, you know, as far as his experience and all that makeup stuff, I think anybody would be uh, excited to have him in their defensive back room.
0: So that spot is loaded, as we talked about in this year's class, and it's going into the NFL at just the right time. All right, we'll close with Max Crosby. Max Crosby is, I believe, a fourth round pick. For the Raiders last year, Eastern Michigan. Um, I think he was a I very next watch-
3: pick to uh, Chauncey Gardner Johnson,
0: actually. There we go. I remember watching Max Crosby during last year's draft. I think I actually had him ranked as like the 69th overall player. Um, one, I loved his athletic profile 6'5, 255, 88th percentile composite score. Uh, He was just like a wild man as a pass rusher, though. Like (laughs) at times you saw, you know, this bend where he could work around and was flexible. You saw this, you know, two or three step quickness. Even there was power at times. He just had like no idea what he was doing. Um, But as a value, again, I think on day three in the fourth round, he obviously had a lot of production during his rookie season. And, you know, I don't have it in front of me how many of those were like pure sacks, how many of those were uh, chased down hustle sacks. But that's what Max Crosby brings to the table is that hustle play and athleticism is pivotal with that when you have the right mentality. And he was obviously a very productive player during his rookie season.
3: Yeah, you hit it all there. I really like Max Crosby. He stood out to me because he won with some strength and I always make notes of those guys uh on saturdays that don't look to run around tackles that have no problem going right through you he put a bunch of guys on their butt with some speed to power bull rushes and it was pretty much him and sutton smith out there and uh you know trying to in the mac or wherever they played uh racking up the sack totals and i really just thought max crosby was the better uh pro prospect sutton smith being the the kind of undersized edge rusher there but Yeah, really impressive going from 11 sacks to Eastern Michigan and immediately being a productive contributor to the Raiders.
0: So we don't have athletic profiles on nearly enough prospects this year. We're not going to get them either. And that's a great separator for me among edge rushers, uh, especially in this year's class, where who did you have written down for this for Max Crosby?
3: I have two names here and I was a little bit. Split on the narrative here, so I don't want to just go for both and, and
0: make your claim, own
3: claim. Two guys here, but I feel pretty good. You don't have either of these, so okay. My Tommy Tryhard of the group, like Max Crosby, <laughs> the hustle, the effort, the play to the whistle—that's Kenny Willikus to a T, who doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities, but just plays with his hair on fire. Is an every-down player, not a liability against the run. When you break down the sacks in the NFL, you'd be surprised how many are acquired through effort and hustle as opposed to speed and skill. And I think Kenny Willekes is one of those guys, you prove you could be on the field, that's how you get sack totals, where you're not just a third-down situational player. But then on the other side, who's a guy that has those raw tools that could be productive just for being a great pass rusher? And I think that's Jonathan Grenard out of Florida, who's going to wake up in the morning knowing how to be a speed rusher, knowing how to run around tackles, Just like Yannick and Dockway came out and immediately was a great contributor getting after quarterbacks, I think that's going to be Jonathan Grenard out of Florida, who is the Louisville transfer, had 10 sacks last year in the SEC replacing Ja'Kai Polite. But he's one of these guys that really looks to run around tackles as opposed to Max Crosby, really proved he could win around you, through you, inside, with effort. But when you're just talking about the raw tools who can produce, just showing up, waking up in the morning – I think Grenard can show that he can get quarterbacks on third down for any team.
0: What if I told you I picked Gernard's teammate, another Florida pass rusher? Oh, Zaniga, interesting. Do, do you think that might fit here? Because he's another one that, you know, almost finishes athletic profile. It's, proje- it's projected in the 85th percentile, 6'3", 264. And like, it was all flash, you know, I I don't know if you necessarily put it together. And in fact, I think there were some inside moves where he did work through the opponent as you're talking about, but like there was enough like waist and and shoulder dip that, you know, when getting that leverage advantage on the outside, that he was able to then turn the corner and flatten out and and get to the quarterback. Like the more I watched Zuniga um, and those high moments, the more I thought that like there could be something here. For an NFL team that, again, if he goes, what, round two, round three, round four, wherever it is, right. then then he, he might have the tools to, to, you know, convert production at the NFL level.
3: That's great you brought that up, because when I put in Crosby into my metrics, 6'5", 255, 466, there really aren't a lot of guys in those metrics this year. I think I only had three or four guys, and I wasn't excited about any of them. One was Jabari Zaniga, Another was DJ Wanham at South Carolina. But Jabari Zaniga, when you put together the two Florida guys last year, Ja'Kai Polite and Jabari Zaniga, Zaniga was the better football player. It was just Ja'Kai Polite was the one with the good first step, terrorizing quarterbacks and getting the sack totals. Just like Alabama a couple years ago, Tim Williams and Ryan Anderson. Tim Williams got all the sacks. Ryan Anderson was the better football player. And now we sit here with Ryan Anderson in the league and I don't know where Tim Williams is. But when you look at Jabari Zaniga, he was a guy that didn't come off the field on early downs, which Ja'Kai Polite didn't play early downs. Even Chauncey Gardner-Johnson didn't play a lot of early downs at Florida. He slid into three tech and sub packages. He wasn't a liability against the run. I just thought he showed you he could do more for an NFL defense and was a more complete player as far as being an NFL prospect. I think that's a great pick right there.
0: Ben, this was a lot of fun. This was exactly what I had hoped for. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, everyone out there, Ben Fennell, underscore NFL, probably one of my favorite Twitter followers out there. I learn something from Ben every time I just scroll through his feed, like click on the little media tab. He's posting clips. He's giving you reasoning. He'll teach you something. Uh, ben, you're also doing work with Fran Duffy with the Eagles in terms of podcasts and videos and things of the sort, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I work with uh, Fran the Eagles during the season, but we've maintained our Journey to the Draft podcast uh, year round. Uh, right now I'm with the NFL Network doing all of our draft coverage or what will potentially be draft coverage, helping out right. Daniel Jeremiah, doing a lot of his research and tapes. And uh, during the season as well, I'm on the road with ESPN College Football with Greg McElroy, doing a lot of his research and tapes as well. So a lot of football, a lot of, a lot of things stay fresh. Also writing for the athletic, doing some Packers breakdowns. Uh, It's a lot of football, but you know, life could be worse, right?
0: Multiple sources of income. I I see you, Ben. I see what you're doing. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. Really appreciate this. Uh, You're the man. Um, And then we're not there. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will talk to you next Tuesday with Ian Harditz and John Daigle.
1: See you then.